Hey, this is Zuri Berry. Before we get to the podcast, I want to tell you why this project is so important to Donnell and me. We started this with the goal of telling the stories of journalists who look like us in this industry we love. We want to recognize talent, celebrate achievement, and give some flowers to some people who are really deserving to have the spotlight put on them. But also, it's really important that we hear from our fellow black journalists at this particular moment in time when our industry has enormous challenges and our presence as commentators, experts, political writers, on-air talent, and investigative reporters seem optional to some. That doesn't sit right with me, and I hope it doesn't sit right with you either. I hope you're here to hear just as much about the successes as you are about the struggles, whether it's the struggle to get that first job to find a space where you feel like you belong, to find the bravery to strike out on your own or to have your voice heard, whether it's about the current state of media or otherwise. And so we want to thank you for supporting us by listening. And we want to ask you for your direct support of the production of this podcast. You can do that by going to buymeacoffee.com slash black journos and donating today. That's buymeacoffee.com slash black journos. You can find the link in the show notes. Thank you. Now, on to the interview. This is the Black Journalist on Journalism podcast, a ZMC podcast production. This is our first time out. Zoe Berry, myself, Donnell Suggs, and we have the wonderful opportunity to interview one of my favorite beat writers, one of my favorite people in the business, Mr. Keith. Pompey from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Keith, how are you, brother? Hey, what's up, man? How you doing? Fantastic. Listen, we'll get into last night and how it be looked like the short bet for MVP and all that. But what we want to do with this podcast is create a space for black journalists to talk about their careers, how they got started, that route. Everyone's got a different route. We've all in this business, we've all got a different route to where we are right now. And I think this should be a space where black journalists can listen be a young or old like me and be able to come in and hear someone else's backstory. There's, everyone's got a different route and I'd love to be able to share those stories. Zuri and I thought this would make sense to have a space where we can share those stories for other people, be a young journalist just starting out or people like us that wanted to hear how our fellow contemporaries have gotten to where they gotten. So when I was, we were thinking of a list, I said, let me start with Keith because that's my guy. And I've been reading him since I was a freshman in school in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, a long time ago. And I feel like um, this would be a great place to start. So we wanted to start with you. Really, really appreciate you having us. Yeah. Do that. No, I appreciate that. I really appreciate that. Zuri, introduce yourself, please. Well, so my name's Zuri. I have been a journalist for the past 20 years. I was started as a sports reporter, sports producer. I worked for the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald. Uh, did some TV editing, did some public radio editing, and now I do podcast production. And this is uh, part of me sticking or staying involved, if you will, with uh, journalism and, and, and trying to do more storytelling. And so it's so important for me to hear from folks like Keith and folks like Donnell and folks like that, that we have intending to come on this show, talk about their journey and talk about their path and what they've learned and how to pass that on to the next generation. So that's the big thing for me. That's why I'm here. That's what I'm interested in. And with that, I feel like we can kick it off and get Absolutely. going. So part of my job as the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Voice is to cover the Atlanta Hawks. So I see Keith about once mm -hmm. or twice a year, sometimes three, depending on how the schedule works. 
And Keith, yo, you've been working with the Inquirer for almost 20 years. I'd love to hear just you tell us your backstory from school to falling in love with journalism to how you got started in the business, please. Yeah, you know, it's, it's weird. Like, you know, it all started in high school. And, you know, in high school, I was a part of like the high school newspaper. So I really got into it. But I'm going to be real with y'all. Um, you know, my father was like, it's no money in in journalism. Like, you know what I mean? If you're black, you got to be a doctor. You got to be a lawyer. So when I went to Pitt, I took a lot of communication rhetoric classes and I was prepared to go to law school to a point where I got accepted. And this is a crazy story. Y'all going to laugh at this one. But my passion was always with journalism. And I was a track nerd. And what happened is I had a complaint at the student newspaper my final semester. And uh, I went up there and the guy said, I'm tired of you coming here. I'm tired of you complaining. If you want the track team covered, they got a track meet next weekend. You cover it. So what happened is I wrote the story. It was the worst story ever published. <laughs> ever Seriously, y'all. I was walking on the yard, crashing like the student union. I went to pick and I saw this co-ed who I always wanted to date and said, I read your article. Great article. I'm going to be a reporter. That's, it. Be- That's, it. That's all it That takes. was it. Now, a little bit of affirmation. That's it. I never dated the young lady, but that was like a good enough excuse for me to get started. Right. So I'll be honest with you. I graduated. My father was upset. At that particular time, my mom and dad were like separated. And um, I remember my first, like I had it, uh, I I took a job working at the housing office at Pitt because I did not want to go to uh, grad school for this. So I took post-baccalaureate courses and I worked at the housing office at Pitt. And I know y'all probably familiar with the Pittsburgh Courier. Cur- yeah. So I had an internship there. That- and they let me do certain things. Shout out to black mm-hmm. newspapers. Exactly. Shout out to black newspapers. That can help me. Yeah, I'm telling you. They were the ones who said, come on, write for us. So I did that. And then I went. Um, I had a fellowship at the Arizona Republic, a Pulliam Fellowship. And then I had what was called a landmark internship, which was a year long internship. I'm telling you, y'all, I was raw. I didn't know anything. And um, so I get my first real job was in Martinsville, Virginia, at the Martinsville Bulletin. And they always say you got to have dreams. Right. So my dream was always to be the 76ers beat writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. At the time, Stephen A. Smith was the beat writer. Now, mind you, I told you my mom and dad weren't together. I knew that my mom was coming down to see me live in Virginia. Lo and behold, it was my mom and my dad at the door. I'm shocked right? because they're no longer together. My dad had a U-Haul, a U-Haul van. And he said, pack up your stuff. We're going home. You got to go to law school. You don't, you ain't going to give up your goal, your dream. And I was like, I'm not. And my mom was like, nah, you're coming home. You're going to stay with me. And I said, mom, 
you're going to allow me to bring girls in there. You're going to allow me to do this. You're going to allow me to do that. And she was like, no. And I said, well, I ain't coming home. I said, but I promise you, mom, I am going to come home one day and I'm going to work for the Philadelphia Inquirer. They thought I was crazy. And like, lo and behold, I want to say maybe five years later, five, six, yeah, five years later, I came back and I, and I got a job at the Yankee. What, what I'm getting from that right now is there's no dream. There's no journalism dream too big for any of us. You can't, you can't believe it's too big for you. Otherwise, there's no way you're going to be able to accomplish it. Exactly. You know, know what it was, y'all? It was one of those things where, well, first of all, I grew up in inner city Philly. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, the high school guidance counselor told my mom that I wasn't college material, that I need to do shop. And my mom was like, nah, y'all crazy. Y'all got my son misunderstood, right? So it was always, I was felt like I was the underdog. But it was one of those things where I always tell people, if I made it, if I could become this beat writer and I had this dream, anybody can do what they want, right? Now, the deal is you got to understand something. Where I come from, it was like people didn't go to college. It was one of those places where, and I'm thinking it's no different than any other inner city community, right? So typically when, when brothers go away, we either think they're locked up or they were in the service, you got to keep reminding people like, nah, I'm in school. I'm in school. So it was that type of situation. But all I kept thinking about, if I give up on this dream, like somebody got to tell me that I'm a complete failure before I decided mm -hmm. to give up. Because if I give up on this dream, what's going to happen is I'm going to be 50, 60, 70 years old wondering what happens if I would have kept fighting? So what I did is honestly, y'all, like I just kept doing it. I mean, I was going to small, living in small communities, not making any money and just grinding. And it's funny, like God, you know, God bless my situation. But there were some people who thought I was crazy. I had girlfriends who broke up with me saying like chasing this dream that's not going to work out for you. I had, you know, my father thinking I was crazy at a time. And it was like, he's a fool. He's not going to make it. I mean, I'm being real. That's, you know, like, unfortunately, we hear more of the negative than we hear the positive in situations like that. Now, there's a few things that you mentioned there about your, your backstory and your journey. And you talked about the internships. You talked about the, the job in Martinsville. There is somebody, probably a few somebodies, that gave you a break in those instances. Can you, can you give us a little bit of insight in what those breaks were, who those people were that were instrumental in getting you going? The first guy was a guy by the name of Marvin Lake. Marvin Lake was at the Virginian Pilot. He was the recruiter. He was in charge of the uh, internship, right? He was, well, actually was the second guy. The first guy was a guy by the name of Mike White from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. He was a guy who basically, he was a high school dude, but he was a guy that gave me an opportunity to answer phones. He also gave me some story assignments. Now, I, I re remiss to not, like, thank the people at the Pittsburgh Courier, right? All of them. They were cool. They were the ones that got me started. 
But Marvin Lake was a guy who I met um, at a job fair in New York. It was um, it was one of them big career fairs, so to speak. And it's like you think you're the guy. Like, yeah, you know, I'm taking post baccalaureate courses at Pitt. I'm, you know, I'm walking up to the New York Times saying, "Hire me. I can cover the Giants." Right. <laughs> you know, and they're like, no. and then Marvin, he said to me, he said, um, "I like you. It's something about you." Like, what's this guy talking about? He was like, but you got to get your act together. I'm like, what is he talking about? He was like, look, you got to send me some clips. I want to critique your clips and just, you know, just stay, you know, just stay humble. So then all of a sudden, next thing you know, he says, hey, we got this fellowship. And I was like, well, I also got a fellowship. And he said, year long internship. I said, but I also got it accepted to the Pulliam Fellowship, and they sent me to Phoenix. He said, well, we'll hold a slot for you. When it's over in Phoenix, come to, come to um, it was my first spot was Virginia Beach. So I worked for the Virginian pilot for like four months. And then from there, I went to uh, Virginia Beach. And then I went to uh, the Roanoke Times. Virginia, right? You're taking over Virginia. So, um, uh, so it was like this dude believed in me, and but he was like the one thing about him is he kept it 100. You know, like you know how when we were all younger and we had that uncle or that aunt or even our mom, like we were acting like the slang words just appeared and like stuff, and we right. think we're getting over them, we're not, and they really just laughing at right. us. That's how Marvin was. And he was, he was seriously, he was a, a huge influence in my life, a huge influence. You know, I think one of the things, again, that you mentioned was the people gave you a shot, but you listened to him, though. You could have said, you could have blew him oh, off yeah. and said, this guy doesn't know me, but you listened to him. I think that's a large part of dealing with young journalists right now as an editor in chief at a black newspaper. I do get an opportunity to speak to a lot of young black journalists. And the first thing they want to do is jump right in and Mr. Sells. Can I cover, you know, Vice President Harris is coming tomorrow. I'd love to do that. You're not even finished with school yet. You want to cover the Vice President or President Biden's coming. I'd like to cover you to do that. And if you listen to me, you, I would tell you, Shorty, you got to slow down and maybe go ahead and get me some Georgia State coverage or cover that, that yeah. ribbon cutting. And some of them listen and some of them go, oh, well, okay, I'm going to try something else because I, I wanted to do that. And the smart thing for you was, and you and me and Zuri and a lot of us, we have to listen. And this generation is a little younger, and they do have access to a lot more information so they feel like they don't have to listen sometimes. And I try to tell my young staff, you got to listen, man. Trust me. I was right where you were. So when I'm listening to your story, I'm like, I need a lot of our younger journalists to hear that too, that you had to take the job at Roanoke. And you had to take that internship and those things first before you get a chance to cover the Sixers, per se. Oh, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, like, not really crazy. Like, the job in, in Martinsville, Virginia, it was a three-person staff, and it was an evening thing. Now, we had the sports editor, had me and another guy, and we had to take our own photos. We had to, like, it, it, the way the jobs went, we had to be there at, like, 4 a.m., and we had to lay out the paper, right? You do all that. And then 
after you'd lay out the paper and do everything, it was afternoon paper, then you would go out on assignment and like go to practice or cover a game and this and that. So there was really no deadline per se. But when you look at it, I mean, we weren't making any money, but we were actually making less when you added up the hours. Right. It was. So that was like the start. That was the start. But I would be remiss. There's another brother to, to this day who is my mentor. And his name is Paul Mitchell. He's been my mentor for like 30 years. And he was the one who basically told me, you're not good enough. I mean, he kept it real with me. He said, you keep saying you want to be a beat writer, but you're not good enough. You don't have what it takes. And he would always bring up a guy by the name of Mark Spears. And, you know, a lot of people know Mark. He was like, you're not on Mark's level. And I'm like, well, who the heck is Mark? And he was like, Mark covers the Denver Nuggets. And Mark does this and Mark does that. And, um, I mean, his keeping it 100 with me was kind of like the best thing that happened. And I'm going to tell you this. What he did is he made me say, am I ready yet? Am I ready yet? And when he gave me that confirmation, I mean, it was weird. Like, he even told me that not to take this job, don't take that job. And um, that's the thing that really helped me out a lot. But I'm telling you, he was, I didn't know Mark from Adam. But he was like, you're not like you ain't on his level. You ain't on his level. And I, I think when you get stuff like that, it, it, it helps you because he kept it 100 with me. And he still does to this day. Keith, it, it sounds to me that you had a real humbling experience there. But beyond that, you also buckled down and worked on your craft. And I want to hear what mm -hmm. your thoughts are on what that took and what that process was like. Just thinking about your craft down to everything from how you write your game stories and how you write your commentaries and sentence structure, all of that. I mean, it seems that we don't get into those weeds enough with some of these young people. And that's something that it sounds like you took time on. Oh yeah. It, so this is what I did. It's, and when we talk about that, it comes to a point where a lot of people don't, like you said, they don't do that en enough. And it's easier nowadays because of social media, not so or well, because of the internet. But what I had to do is there were certain people who, and and they were black. There were black authors, right? One guy was Nathan McCall, right? Remember the guy, brother who wrote "Makes Me Want to Holler" and stuff like that. So what I did is I would read his books. That was nothing. But then also what I would do is I would try to get as many newspapers I could and I would just read them. And then after I would read them, I would store them away. Like seriously, I had a cabinet and I still do. Heck, I still do to this day. I have a cabinet of old newspapers. And what I would do is, what I would do is I would go back to them and I'll read old articles that I had. And it wasn't of me. It was always of, okay, breaking news a player is uh caught up in like a homicide or something like that so i would read that to see how this person you you don't you don't plagiarize it you read it and you will see how they get into the story or like um another thing contract negotiations 
you know, all this stuff. So I would just read as much as I could to see how people go about it. I also would study how when I would want places, I would study how the beat writers and all these other people conducted themselves, how they asked questions, like, you know, who was had stuff in the notebook, you know what I mean? Things like that. And I always asked a hundred questions. It was one of those things where I just wanted to learn as much as I could. I'm saying, though, Keith, you studied the craft, though. It wasn't like you were just, just because you got a job in it and you've accomplished that, you didn't stop learning. Mm-hmm. Just like you were learning in school, we're still learning right now. Yeah. Because every year you're covering the team, but the team changes sometimes. Yeah, eventually, they go, it's going to change again. The key players will move on or whatever, and then you'll have to do that again. There's more studying. I think it's important exactly. that we, we tell our brothers and sisters, you got to keep studying, though. It's not over just because you're getting the check. Bingo, you're right. Let me ask you this to sort of transition a little bit. When did you get your start at the Philly Inquirer? And when did you transition to the NBA beat? And to to really ask you about that beat, I want to get into, like, when did you actually catch your rhythm on the beat? Because I know that's a big part of moving to the pro sports level. Yeah, you know, so I got hired at the Enquirer in 2004. And to be honest with you, it was, you know, like I said, I got my foot in the door. And again, we got to talk about patience because I covered high schools for a while. I mean, a while. And when I got there, I wasn't even covering like football. Like I was, I was like the, the soccer writer, the field hockey writer all this in South Jersey and it was like you know it could be a little frustrating because you're saying to yourself like yo why can't I cover football you know well what happened is one day I had I had lunch with an editor and we were talking basketball and he was like man you seem to know a little bit about basketball here and I was like yeah he was like well you want to be the high school basketball writer? And I was like, sure. And he was like, so that's how that happened, right? So then all of a sudden, um, I became the small college football writer, right? Covering like Westchester, uh, Villanova, like the small college teams. And then one day, um, Mike Days, who used to be the editor of the Philadelphia Daily News, who came to the Enquirer for a little bit and was the managing editor for the Enquirer. One day we had lunch and he said to me, um, he said, what do you want to do? I said, man, I'm a Philly kid. I want to cover Temple basketball. I want to cover Temple basketball. And he says, all right, let's see. And next thing you know, I became the Temple basketball beat writer. Well, with that, I became the Temple football beat writer too a year later, right? So that's when I start. That's when people really, I think the people above really start noticing things, right? Now, again, I got passed over. There was a, I got passed over twice for the Sixers beat. There was um, a young, uh, a young lady by the name of Kate Fagan who went on to uh, work for ESPN. Um, they gave her the beat and, you know, we both were at that point. I'm like, man, like, 
I'm trying to get my, my break. They gave her the beat. And then there was a guy by the name of John Mitchell, oh, still a good friend of mine, who was covering, um, he came here to be a GA writer. He used to be an NBA writer, but he wanted to be a GA writer. Like he wanted to spend more time with his children and all this stuff. And they looked at it. And when Kate left, they were like, well, Keith doesn't have any experience. So I got passed over again. And, you know, I was heartbroken a little bit, but that's my guy. Right. And, and so it was weird because what he did is he always let me know what was going on, like with how you cover a beat, this and that, the grind and kept saying, look, man, if you're going to do this, you got to be in it off, you know, on 100. Once you're out of it, you can't do it. So then one day he calls me and he says, this was like uh, towards the end of the season. And he said, no, at the season over, he says, hey, look, man, I don't know what's going on, but they got me covering Temple football and basketball. I'm like, what? He said, they got me covering Temple football and basketball. And I said, well, what about me? What are they going to have me covering? Like, how, how they just give you my beat? And next thing he said, I don't know, man. I don't know what to tell you. And then next thing you know that, I was I'm talking to him, the sports editor's on the other line, and he's like, hey, uh, you covering Temple. I mean, you covering the Sixers. And John is my guy. Now, I'm going to tell you all this. This was always my dream, but I didn't want to take his job because that was my guy. And you feel like the other thing might be viewed as a demotion. And I said, John, I can't take it right now. And he was like, what? I said, John, I can't take it. This was like, um, this was what, 2013, like right before they uh, got Sam Hinkie in the process. And I said, I can't take it. And he said, dude, you mean to tell me you waited all these years to get this beat and you ain't going to take it? He said, I'm telling you, if you don't take it now, you may never get it. And I was like, but John, they did. how they going to do you like this? And he was like, Keith, I'll give you my blessings. You're going to do well. So that's how I got to be. Um, sorry, like if I'm getting a little, because, you know, it was like my dream. But if it wasn't for another brother, first of all, he didn't want the job. Let's just say that initially. But he didn't want to lose the job either. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. But he was the one that pushed me to take it. And... um it was hard because I didn't have any sources. It was a new guy coming in, Sam Hinkie. You had, at that time, it wasn't all these bloggers. It was like reporters, like dudes with sources, this and that. And I was petrified. I wanted the job, but I was scared that I was going to get scooped all the time. So it was hard initially, but you got to pick your feet to the ground and you just got to like, if you're a shy person... It ain't the time to be shallow. You know what I mean? You had to do whatever. So I want to say a year in there is when I felt like I was getting there. You know what I mean? I felt like it. But that first season, it was tough because you don't even know where the media entrance is. You know what I mean? They telling you that you got to have your first story filed at the buzzer. Then you got to come back an hour later. 
you know, stuff like that. So it, it was crazy. It was a lot of work. And then I knew what Paul Mitchell was saying, like, you ain't ready to do what Mark Spears is doing. Keith, so. you didn't have any idea what you wished for, huh? I didn't. Yo, I mean, I'm glad. I, I mean, you know, it's a lot of work. And, and John was telling me that it's a lot of work. You know, it's a lot of work. And especially now with social media, you don't you don't you don't have any time um, to, do, to do anything. A lot of people think you just go to the games. You're in the locker room talking to the players. They think all that stuff. But it's a tough job, man, especially if you do it the right way, because people if you if you write the truth. People respect you, but they don't always like you, you know what I mean? And and that and that's the thing that a lot of I think the young kids need to know, like you want to be respected. Um, because that carries it. But at the same time, being respected and being a journalist there's going to be some times where people are going to be upset of what you write and the way you write it. And also people need to know that, you know, this isn't an eight hour job. If you think it's an eight hour job where you just show up and like you punch in the clock, it ain't for you because you got to get up early. You, and you, you, you supposed to read what your competitors have because you may get scooped. And then at the same time, like there's going to be times at night where you're getting calls from people. And there's going to be some breaking news or you got to do it. I mean, you don't have any time. Like the biggest story I broke, what happened when I was on vacation, I was literally on vacation and got a scoop. So I'm just saying like, it's a job that's 24 hours basically, or at least 18 hours a day that you you're on call and you're doing things. Keith, talk about how covering high school's, actually helped you in that because I know people don't think covering high schools, that ain't like covering the Sixers, but you have to make those relationships when you cover high schools and they're a lot more intimate. You know, I mean, you talk to the coaches, you talk to the players, they see you around town sometimes depending on how small the paper is. I bet that helped a whole lot with ultimately covering the biggest, one of the biggest clubs in the city and one of the biggest sports towns in America. It helped a lot, but it also, in, in, in addition to like, making relationships and building stuff, it, it also makes you a better reporter. Like, I mean, you know, you think about it, like when you want to go to high schools, you know, you like the high school writers, they got to do everything old school, like high school writers. You got your notepad. The game is going on. You like you're going through it. Right. You know what I mean? You're looking up. You're doing, going through it. You know, you go back when you cover a pro beat or a college beat. You know, you got dudes up there just sitting there, like, tweeting, talking, doing this and that. I mean, half the time, they don't know what's going on. Some people, it's just, they, they're just there. But when you go to high schools, you don't have that luxury of somebody taking stats for you. You know, you have to go out there and do it your own self. So I think that makes you a reporter. It also forces you to to have relationships and build stuff with people. You know what I mean? Get a rapport with people. But I, I you know, without high schools, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. I just wouldn't, you know, because that's how today, like there are certain times on the pro beat, you don't, you, you don't like take as many stats as you used to. But when high schools, you got to do everything. And there's also some character too. 
how many times you were in the high school and you like after the game, at least back in the day, hey, y'all got a phone line? Y'all got somewhere I can go and I can file a story, you know, or or one of those where, oh man, my deadline's in an hour, but I got a 30 minute drive to get to the office or somewhere. So you're you in know, a you McDonald's like, parking lot somewhere. McDonald's, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so those don't exist no more. I, I, I think, yeah, yeah, they don't miss anymore. But those are those build character. That builds character. Yeah, that you just said a bunch of things that just you know had me reflecting on my own sports journey, <laughs> being a high school sports writer, and 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 you know, sort of waiting in the wings for opportunities to cover pro sports. There's so much about that, and there's so many. Um, young people that have been able to skip a few steps in that respect. Right? You know, I think that for our generation, and I, and I would put us in a, an older generation, um, you know, feel as if, you know, there is a progression sometimes to these career arcs, meaning high schools, colleges, then pros. And some folks have been sort of skipping that, if you will. Although you could say today that it's very different. And I just want to get your sense or, or take on that in terms of like, how people are finding themselves in the business now and whether or not they have or prepared for all of the things that go along with that. That's a, that's a great question. And it's a tough subject, right? Because, you know, you look at it now and there's more, there's more opportunities, you know, like, you know, you think of the markets that you worked in, you know, you look at, you know, where you at right now, you know, let, let's just think before there was the AJC, there was a couple smaller newspapers in the area, and you had people who were there for years. Now they have these startup websites and stuff like that. So it's easier for people to get a job and do things, right? But I also think that sometimes with that comes, you have some people who are more fans than reporters, and they don't know the difference. They had key faith, right? You know, they they don't know the difference. I, I don't know. I, I, I I'm I'm happy for some people that they're able to get these opportunities, but at the same time, sometimes I feel like they need to pay their dues because there was a point in time you had to work at a smaller paper for at least five years before a bigger paper to look at you. You know, and I, I just look at it now that I feel like sometimes. Some of these younger reporters, again, they don't know. But I feel like sometimes the teams that they cover look at them to be the spokesman for them as opposed to being an objective reporter. Let me just and let me just say this real quick because I think this is interesting that you say that. My, one of my good friends, Gary Washburn, who's you know at the Boston Globe now, he, he and I go, go way back um, from my time there. And one of the things that he remarked upon was all of these different bloggers, digital startup folks, whoever, you know, all these new people, new media folks that are in the locker rooms now. And a ton of them are just standing around in the locker room, just taking yeah. up space, just taking up space because they don't understand to, you know, to, to work a locker. They don't, they don't know how they haven't done it. It's, it's not something that's a, what they know is, you know, oh, this person is, you know, available to speak. So I'm going to put a microphone in their face and, you know, opine on what they say and maybe throw in a good question or two. But they don't know, for instance, like you or maybe Mark Spears. Mark Spears is wonderful at this. 
of how to work a locker room and really, you know, get some new nuggets and information out of people in a way that, you know, people who haven't understood how to finesse these situations, they, they, they just don't know because they didn't have the experience in high school. They didn't have the experience with college. They didn't, they didn't do that. They've been a fan their whole life and they've gotten this opportunity to write for a website. So I just, I'm trying to get a sense of like, you know, this, this, this problem that we have with, you know, there's more opportunities, but also are, are they getting the experience and how can they get up to that speed to that level? Are they not learning from others like yourself within the locker room of maybe how to carry themselves? It, you know, they, they, they're not. I mean, it's tough. Like, you, you would hope that they would, but he, he's right. As a matter of fact, I saw Gary last night at the game. But, you know, it's, it's like to a point where he's literally, there are people staring there, staring at, in the locker room, staring at the athlete. They don't walk up. Now, they'll, they'll walk up to the, the superstar athlete, but the other people, they just look at them. It's like they don't try to make relationships, a lot of them. I mean, it's kind of like they don't go in there pregame. It's more or less, it's, it's sometimes it's best to get a social media video of a guy working out than being in the locker room building relationships with other people. You know, it's tough, man. And, and I don't know how, I don't know how they correct that. I mean, I know how to do it, but I don't know how they will because I don't think some of them want to. You know, see, the problem nowadays with media, and I get it with the aggregation and everything, but I feel like certain people who do a lot of the aggregating feel like they don't have to build a relationship. Like, they'll wait until somebody tweaks it out, and if that person who tweets it out is re a reputable reporter, then I'll go with it. You know, I'll just say, according to ESPN, I was, according to the Boston Globe, whatever publication, and I'm going to get hits off of that article. But I'm not doing the legwork to build the relationship so I can make sure that I can get it confirmed or I can break it. It's like they don't care anymore. And, and to me, that's one of the biggest downfalls with this industry now. You know, it's like how many times where you see and they all everybody does it. We all do it. I mean, every publication, whereas if ESPN has something or someone else has something, as Gary Washburn has something, the next thing you know, is in the Philadelphia Inquirer somewhere else saying, get, according to Gary Washburn, this happened, you know, and it's it's um, I don't know. It, it, it's a little it's a little disheartening because I remember before we're. It was real competitive and that everybody wanted to do their own work. Now you just want to get videos out, get tweets out, and basically rewrite what somebody else said. Keith, I can't tell you how many times up until actually last Saturday night where I'm in the scrum and there's 30 people in the scrum, but only three of us actually asked the question. But later on that night, my quote, someone else's quote, someone else's quote, is included in someone else's story. And you know for a fact that person did not, not only not ask the question, didn't even contribute to that whole situation, really. And yet, you know, that blog or that website has a, a game story or has a post-game story. And you're like, I know that guy or that girl. And you didn't even do anything. You just chilled out and waited for us to kind of get the thing going. And, I, and, and it's legal. 
It's legal. We're talking out loud. I'm just saying that's why sometimes I'll go left, I'll go right from the scroll and, and go talk to this person or that person just to shake it up a little bit. And I want young journalists to know you can shake it up. It's not always about Embiid. You can go talk to somebody else. There's more than one player that game. And I think conversations like this are important to show, to let them know. You can, you can go the other route, too, and get a good story out of it. Yeah, and also what they need to do, that's why it's important to build these relationships because, you know, it got to a point where Embiid now, if I really need something, after the scrum, when everybody, when he says, they say, all right, last question, he's done. I go up to him and say, yo, Joe, I need you. I got two questions. And I'm like off in the corner whispering <laughs> and like, hey, I need this. He, he gives it to me. Tobias Harris, you know, when he does his walk-offs, AT, can I get something? You know, a couple other people. But see, you only get that when you build that relationship. Like if you that dude that's in the locker room just staring at him and you're not saying anything to him, nah, you're not going to get it. So that's why it's important to 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 do that. And also people need to realize, and and I, I found this out from like Ramona Shelbourne and, and other people, um, you know, uh, uh, people that y'all, we all know, right? One time one dude said to me like, Pompey, like, no offense, but why are you always asking all the big, all your important stuff in the scrum? And I'm like, you know, you're supposed to like, nah, nah, that ain't how it always works, man. Like, sometimes what you need to do is you need to get that for the one-on-one. Because all you're doing is, like you said, it's legal. You're filling up everybody else's notebook. And nowadays, unfortunately, like, you know, let's face it. Um, you know, we work at publications to where it's one of those points where that stuff might run tomorrow, the next day. But it's already all over uh, Twitter. Because somebody else had it. Nowadays, people might even sit at home, not even in their place, uh, and tweet your stuff. So, you know, young reporters need to know it's important to build relationships and it's important to always get these one-on-ones with these players. And I think something you just mentioned there is just speaks to the competitive nature of these beats, right? We're still in competition Mm -hmm. with rival newspapers, TV outlets, radio, et cetera. We're all in competition in these uh, arenas, uh, particularly when it comes to sports. And I, I think that sometimes it's underplayed. It's like, we're all just doing this. No, no. Some of us want to be better than others. <laughs> and you, you mentioned something about being a, a primary source versus a secondary source. Let me tell you something. All the love goes to the primary source. Whether or not people want to uh, believe it, whether or not they think it's easier to just be that secondary source, all the love still goes to the primary source. And so if you're doing that work, everything is going to start flowing toward you. And I think that's represented in your work in particular, Keith. And I just want to ask you, now that we're on this subject, and, and I know we're getting close to running out of time here, what, what does it mean then to thrive in this job at this point in time, given all of these competitive factors, given the digital landscape? I mean, you got startups like The Athletic out there. You got all these different things that are out there. What does it mean to thrive right now as a sports journalist? You know, it means a lot because 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 it's all about hard work. You know, it, it's one of those things um, where, you know, in this market, I'm looked upon as the go-to. You know, I mean, that's what they – because I remember I was trying to – I was thinking about moving to another market. And, you know, we all look to our mentors – 
Like I went to David Aldridge and I was like, DA, so I'm thinking about going. He's like, man, it got to be a way better job for you to go. He says, because right now when I'm, when, when we think of people in that market, it's you. You're the guy. So you got to make sure if you leave, it has to be something better. Um, you know, it is, it, it, but it makes you feel good because when you look at it, people don't understand this. And this isn't a knock. This isn't a knock. There are certain reporters who you have to work hard to get the news. I'm one of those reporters. There are other reporters because of their profile. And again, this isn't a knock, but because of their profile, they're given the news. You, you know what I mean? Like you got to go out and get the news where they're handed the news. So you're not going to always scoop them. They're going to get the majority of the other stuff. But the fact that I'm able to get some things from time to time, I, it makes you feel good. You understand what I'm saying? Because you know it's not a level playing field anymore. It's not. You know, people tend to go to guys who have way more Twitter followers, guys who have a higher profile naturally, because it's easier for them to get that information out. But the fact that I can grind hard and get some things, it, it is a sense of pride that I'm able to do that. You know, looking back on it, you made the right decision, even though dad was like, you're losing your mind. Looking back on it, you feel like you made the right decision. Yeah, it's funny because now my pop acts like, oh, I knew I, I wasn't like that. I mean, <laughs> yes, you were. Yes, you were. <laughs> yes, you were. Oh, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, but you know what? It's one of those things where they say you can't give up your dream. You just can't. I mean, you like, I didn't want to be, honestly, I didn't want to be that guy. And it's nothing against it. But I didn't want to be that guy who had a job doing something that I hated, a blue collar job that I hated. And, and all my life wondering what if I would have, if I, if I would have stayed in Martinsville, Virginia, instead of coming home with my mom. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to do it. So, so what do you tell young sports journalists at this point in time who come to you for advice? And I'm sure you get them quite often. What do you tell them? I mean, cause they may not take the same path that you took. They may find themselves skipping a few steps. Like we talked about how, what, what advice do you give them to be able to uh, position themselves for success in this business? Well, first of all, I always tell them the first advice I give them is don't let anybody tell you you're not good enough. I mean, and I always tell them, if I'm doing it, you're way ahead of me. So you're going to definitely do it. But especially a person of color, a young black journalist or anyone of color, people tend to bring up the things we can't do instead of talking about the things we can do. Right. And, you know, you, you hear that. And I don't want them to be... um to feel like I can't do it. I mean, you hear it all the time. So, and especially when you skip steps, because when you skip steps, they don't understand it. Sometimes you put in a position to fail because, and it is nothing against you, but you don't have that base that we talked about in regards to high schools in regards to getting your own stats. It's like, you just have to rely on others, right? 
So with that being said, that's my advice. Keep grinding, continue to grind, but don't allow anyone to tell you you can't do something. That's perfect. That's what it is. That's what it's about. Keep Pompey. Keep Pompey giving it to us. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time, brother. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me let me throw one last lob at you, okay? Who do the Sixers have to beat? Well, I'm asking this on April 5th. Who do the Sixers have to beat so you feel comfortable saying they're going to the NBA Finals or they're going to win the NBA Finals, excuse me? Wow. The, the, the one team that they defeated on Tuesday night is the team that they have to beat for me to feel confident that they're going there. That's the Boston Celtics. Boston Celtics. Like, you know, it was a great game for Joel Embiid. But Boston was out two of their players. It looked like the Celtics, if we're going to be real, the Celtics didn't really start playing until the fourth quarter. And I feel like the 76ers just need to be able to beat Boston in the series. Now, here's the thing. People got to realize this about the Celtics. The Celtics have owned the Sixers since I've been on the beat, right? <laughs> the one year before the that. Sixers, yeah, before that. But it's, it's and then you got to understand this. They both were tanking at the same time. So, I think they played 33 times. Boston won 23 of those games. Now, there was times where the Sixers were beating them because they both were horrible. The one year that the Sixers had a 3-1 advantage, and this is when they both were good, Boston swept them in the playoffs. So, you understand? It's like what we saw last night was great, but I believe that they got to beat the Boston Celtics at full staff and somebody other than Joel Embiid has to step up for me to say this team has a chance. Keith, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you and even talking a little sports too. Keith, we appreciate you, brother. I appreciate y'all for having me on.